Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my able co-host Oliver Jones. This conversation is with Kwame Ferreira. Kwame's mercurial career has seen him play a number of roles, including professor of design, a filmmaker, and founder of Portugal's most successful record label. His true calling is the solution of meaningful problems from a design, engineering, and systems perspective. After meeting supermodel Lily Cole, who was working on a gift economy app called Impossible, together they decided that the Impossible brand could be so much more than one product. They now describe Impossible as an innovation agency, where they aim to create impactful solutions and enact positive change in the world using their own planet-centric design methodology. Their current projects include Fairphone, an ethical smartphone, Bontouch, wearable technology that connects loved ones, Navify, a cancer diagnostic dashboard, and Wikitribune, a crowdsourced news publication designed to combat fake news in collaboration with Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales. It's a good one. So without further ado, we bring you Kwame Ferreira. Good afternoon, everyone. We've got a treat lined up in the form of Kwame Ferreira, CEO of Impossible.com. It was it was nearly Mission Impossible to pin you down while you're in London, so it's, it's good to have you here now. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us. Now, we want to focus the body of the discussion around Impossible.com, but first, it would be useful if you could just give us a run-through of your, your life story before that all came about. So, I was born in Angola. Picture South Africa, then north of it you have Namibia, and then you have this kind of uh, weird country called Angola. Uh, I was born in Luanda. Uh, my parents were out there after the, the independence of the country to help out with, they were filming, filming lost tribes and trying to capture some of the culture um, for a newly formed government. And then we moved out to Brazil. My brother was born, and then we moved around a lot, and I ended up in the south of Portugal. My mother wanted a bit of a safe haven, and so she started a, a restaurant in a very where you know women weren't allowed to kind of go out without their husbands. Everybody's wearing black, and uh, it's wow. kind of really weird, weird place. Um, Is it still uh, like that now? No, no, yeah. it's a it's, gonna say. it's a different world now. Yeah. But back then, it was the mountains in the southwest of Portugal. It was really kind of remote. And then I yes, I went out to Lisbon, Berlin, Boston. I moved around a lot and ended up in London. So this is working or studying? Studying and, and working. I thought I would end up in Cambridge to do some political sciences, refine my, my academic uh, life in, yeah, in political sciences, because I started in fine arts, and fine arts is mostly about yourself. And then <laughs> you, start, you start to understand that the mirror, you know, the mirror is interesting up to a point, and then there are other people out there, and how do you <laughs> connect with other people? And then suddenly digital came about, and we had the internet. It's like, oh my God, I can connect with other people. How can we do this? It's more interesting. And inevitably, if you start to look at the world from a numbers and from people's perspective, then political sciences are the last uh, frontiers where you can actually control, manipulate large populations. Mm-hmm. Sounds Machiavellic. Sounds <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> <not> awful, actually. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, if you can, you know, if you can pass a law, sometimes uh, things can change uh, for the better, um, and we must all kind of abide. So I, I moved around a lot. My father is Brazilian. My stepfather is German. So German is kind of a, a natural environment for mm-hmm. me as well. How did I end up in London? I fell in love with this uh, veterinary surgeon that said, "Oh, I'm going to the UK." I was like, "Okay, I'll come along." <laughs> um, at the time, I was 
a professor of multimedia. I was just doing like weird, weird stuff with a whole bunch of students. A lot of them are still working uh, with me in, in our studio in Lisbon. But that wasn't really going anywhere. It's, it was a bit too slow. And so I just decided to come and see what this island of yours is about. Mm-hmm. Came down to London, met some people who were starting a an agency called Fjord, who was acquired a couple years ago um, by Accenture and started like working on all sorts of interesting problems. After that, I left, I left Fjord. I, I really loved it. I have nothing but beautiful things to say about the people I met there. But I did leave because it wasn't pragmatic enough for me. Um, we were just mostly just doing a lot of thinking and a lot of designing and a lot of concepting, sometimes maybe a prototype or two uh, back in the day when UI and UX we were still magical, magical things. Mm-hmm. And right now uh, they no longer are, which is great. And I wanted just to surround myself with engineers and actually be just much more product focused. So at, at this point, what was your skill set and what did you feel yourself being driven towards in terms of what you wanted to do with it? At this point, my skill set was design, some engineering, an interesting imagination, I guess. Like um, I've always been, uh, I've always delved or took a lot of pleasure in imagining things um, and imagining a future uh, mm-hmm. or future landscapes and kind of putting different dots together. And so that was my skill set. And I think finding interesting people. So I, I, I left Fjord and I, I started a music label in Portugal, which is still going. It's one of the most successful music labels in, in Portugal. Um, I, I, whole, I'm, I just, I'm fascinated by the mechanics of the world. And if there's something I don't understand, I really want to um, try to. And then I grew a bit tired of all this hopping around and put together this team of, of friends, uh, friends and friends of friends. Um, Half of us were designers, half of us were engineers. I think we were lucky enough to start solving problems for some really big companies, so we've never had to have a lot of clients. And we started putting all that money into startups. People were talking about startups, we were like, that's like the new band, you have to have a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's doing one. And we're <laughs> like, okay, how, you know, how, how is this gonna work out for us? And we did, we spent like, yeah, I'm not going to say millions because it's not that many millions, but definitely millions in uh, <laughs> <laughs> in uh, in making mistakes and trying to understand how the whole um, startup dynamic operates. Where were you making those investments into UK startups or Portuguese or just a, sp- a spread? Um, a spread. Most of those investments were actually made into our own startup. So we kind of identified a problem and we were like, OK, let's build a team and let's do it. A couple of times we invested into other startups, uh, external startups, I guess. But for the most part, we've realized that amongst us, we've identified so many problems we want to solve that we don't really, we haven't had the real need to go outside and find startups that, that we would like to, yeah, to help out, to help accelerate. There have been exceptions, and it's usually at a human level, like, we have now an insurance company uh and i never thought i'd be talking about an insurance company in my life like that's the last <laughs> thing i want to do and so you own that business i own that business i have uh, i have the vast majority of the business we have um i mean it wasn't called impossible so if uh, if i kind of backtrack i it was called it hadn't it had my name it had this awful name quantum corporation which mm. sounds like a, a conglomerate an african uh Mining company. Mining conglomerate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ma- I would say an African money laundering company. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said it, not us. <laughs> no, no. It sounded awful. 
but it was a I don't know I had the name and I don't know I must have been on some DMT trip or something <laughs> and uh, and then so I, I I founded the company as Comic Corp and later on I met my partner in life um, and she she had this impossible.com um, idea around the gift economy and um, we we helped out turned it into an open source kind of platform that um, people can download and and create their own little uh, gift economy um, community and that became a product and then we we're like oh that's impossible.com feels like a much more ambitious name for such for you know for it only being shelved as a product and so we just merged the did you meet on the basis of post her founding impossible on the basis that she had created impossible with a an interest synergistically to what you were doing yeah we it was that she had definitely founded impossible by then and had had a few tries um unsuccessful productizing um this this idea um and we came in and we said we would help i had had an an idea about four or five years previous to that, which was called Miko, which is <laughs> really weird. Miko is like my name, like an anagram, like Kwame Miko. Mm-hmm. Um, must have been on another trip. And uh, it was a little app. You had this little creature and you put this creature up and then anybody in the world could download the creature and add images and add stuff to it. Creature said what it wanted. I'd like I'd like to visit Tokyo. It's for people who couldn't really, you know, kids who couldn't really travel to a faraway place. Somebody in Tokyo would download my little Miko and then add pictures to it. And it was fun for a while, but it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, and it underlying it was this reality of a gift economy, which we really love. A lot of value in life it comes in the form of a gift. Um, and how can we have more more structures that empower or enable a gifting in a more meaningful way? And it's through gifts that we actually, you know, we release a lot of oxytocin, that we meet neighbors, that we that we connect meaningfully with people. And so gifting was at the heart of what we were thinking in terms of philosophy already. And so the fact that Lily came crossed our, our path in such a, uh, yeah, it felt very serendipitous. Um, Jimmy Wales was a part of Lily's, uh, Lily's group of, um, of advisors, I guess. And he has by far, at least from a digital perspective, the, more su- the most successful uh, gift economy in the planet. Mm. No, mm. One's, no one pays for it and everybody benefits every day. I, sp- uh, I give it five pounds a year. I'm <laughs> one of the people who props up Wikipedia. Do you? I always oh. think I should. Somebody <laughs> has to. Yeah. So, so yes, gift economies are, are everywhere. I mean, you mean gift almost in the sense of, of trading as well, because as per Wikipedia in your example, that's people gifting knowledge, I guess, rather than just transactional gifting. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it trading. Uh, I'd call it, it's more like pay it forward. Like Mm -hmm. if you give something to, if you give your time to Wikipedia, you're not going to get anything back directly, right? There's no, it's not barter. It's not, there's no trade. What you feel like you're doing is you're contributing to a bigger movement to something that is going to benefit somebody somewhere that you may never really meet, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're part of a community and of a, yeah, you're, you're part of a community that, that gives you a lot of benefit because there's a lot of knowledge out there that you wouldn't necessarily come across. So it's not the same as um, I might give, say I'm a really good maths tutor. I might tutor my neighbor who's a, who's a plumber's son in math. And in, in return, at some point, foreseeable future, my washing machine might break down and then I can call in 
that favor. It's not like that. No, it, um, I guess the only difference there is that you can't call in a favor. It will either happen or not, yeah, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you're part of that community <laughs> and you've gifted. And so it's very likely that in in a time of need, somebody will gift to you because you're part of that community. Sure. But you can't really just, guys, you know, I've just given five pounds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, like, where's my where's my very elaborate article about onions yeah. that I really wanted? And, and was this the central premise of what Lily set up in terms of the, the pay it forward economy, that there were enough people within that ecosystem that at some point in time, whether it mattered or not, you may benefit from just your contribution, but a one-way contribution to the benefits of all? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yes. That sums it up. And so at this point, that product is now called Impossible People. The code for it is open source and, pe- and anyone can can take it and use it to build a, well, a community giving platform for their community. Correct, yeah. Was it too, I mean, it still exists, but the theory of it, was it so vast that it became difficult to form communities that would help each other? Or was it successful in, in achieving that? Because what I mean to say by that is, some communities are quite small and self-fertilize well just because there are restrictions on them. Sometimes, I think there were examples of this where you could lend people items from your house, a lawnmower or a drill or something, that almost become too disparate for anybody to know what they're going on the platform to, to go and see. That, I mean, the community, the impossible people had so many issues, right? And so it's by far not a success. I think it's a success in learning. Mm-hmm. Like we've learned so much. Yeah, what you were pointing out that lack of focus, that was one of its first problems. You know, like if you take a lean methodology to heart, the first thing you're going to do is solve for a very specific problem within a target audience that you can scale. You're not going to go, I'm going to solve the world's problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there was definitely a lot of naivety going into the project but at the same time it's that very naivety that you need as a driving force a lot of the times in in projects such as these you know that was one of one of the learnings focus the other was we didn't really at that time we weren't really following that kind of a a very lean methodology we were it turned out to be a solution looking for a problem Mm. Um, had we focused on I don't know new mom or your flat like neighborly does for example there are loads of examples from a geography perspective and community perspective where you can narrow down the problem space and really start to measure your impact we, w- we were definitely too mm. too young and naive and it turns out it's really hard we ended up putting our energy into creating something open source that that can live on that and can add value to those who are inherently more focused than we were mm. uh, and so they can take it and kind of build upon it, right? There's a project with refugees. Uh, so there are a couple of projects uh, of people that have taken it, have deployed it, and are, think- and are looking at how to, I guess, how to narrow it down to their particular use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but presumably you can only deploy it in that way because you're not for profit. If you were profit driven, then you would have just shelved it as something that was too unfocused to, to to be able to scale properly or you would have iterated it into something more focused i think it's it, it is one of the problems of of the non-for-profit sector right it's this um, it's this myth right you, you're actually thinking that because it's not for profit you don't operate under the same psychological and emotional rules that everybody else operates and the reality is you do and you have to think in a business-like manner if you are to actually if you're if you're actually to solve problems, you need to borrow from a market way of doing things, um, not a 
not a not a utopian way of mm-hmm. doing things. The utopian drive needs to be at the core of what you do, but from a, a process perspective, we need to be much more. If we're to really solve problems at every level, we need to we need to be much more business minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's problems as well um, with something that's ideological. Is it doesn't place an emphasis on tangible value which is sometimes people value time and and it may be if they can't find what they're looking for on a platform that they're now wasting their time it's not that the cause isn't good they just need to be able to to take back that commodity or there's different things that are important to them and and we are aligned with you in that we think the um enterprise or small enterprise sector has a huge ability or or value in changing the world for for better Um, and it's no bad thing if they make money doing that because sometimes it, it speeds up the means of delivery and scales it right because yes. it, it, it's in order to really solve problems you need to be able to in the beginning be very focused but then have a plan on how to scale because otherwise you're just solving a very um it's not that you're solving a narrow problem you're solving a narrow problem for a very um reduced number of individuals in this planet right so i think your level of ambition needs to be needs to be a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And then taking a step back just to the sort of the founding story of Impossible. So you you took you took the brand mm-hmm. from the Impossible brand, basically put it onto Quamical and then sort of developed an identity around that. That sounds that sounds like that I, sounds awful. I didn't mean I didn't, I didn't mean <laughs> it sounds I didn't, like I didn't mean you Lily, give me you, your you took it by force. <laughs> you, you took it at the point of your soul. Um, there was there was definitely seduction in the <laughs> Um, the only reason why it it worked as as a merger is because we we share the same values. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much a matter of taking; it was more of where where is it that we're going? Oh, actually, where we want to get to. Both Lily and my my team, my tribe, felt very aligned, mm-hmm. and so it made sense. Yeah, because right? if we wanted to go down the route of I don't know, go opening um, slaughterhouses, probably wouldn't wouldn't have worked right as, as as a relationship so but presumably when when that happened you had to maybe refine your your or, uh, in the merge of the two philosophies there had to be some sort of refining that went on so that you could decide maybe it happened over a period of time rather than like just being able to look back and say coherently this is what we did but what what was the philosophy that you came up in how you branded the, the sort of the, the new the v2 of impossible I, I i think we're i think we're still doing it uh to to be honest mm-hmm. um i'd like i'd like to deconstruct happiness so if i was to ask you you know like what happiness is it's probably the first one would be health it's kind of hard to be happy without health then meaningful relationships and then meaningful work to an extent right just taking those three elements if we could focus on those three elements and provide solutions for those uh, for problems that you find within those uh, three verticals. So that's how you think you go from the, the the top theme and then work down until you get to niche problems that you can then think about solving. I wish it was that easy. <laughs> you know, but it's, it it sure. is, you know, there's a randomness to our universe and the, to the way we navigate these, you know, these cities and these lives that I don't, you know, like two years ago, I would have, this podcast would have sounded so so differently and. Mm. I'll be probably accused of inconsistency, you know, like three years down the line, if, if somebody kind of does a podcast again and kind of, oh, Kwame, but you said that. Mm. Yeah. Well, at the time, that's why, you mm. know, I was You should it. be allowed to change <laughs> according to the new, um, the new way the world 
uh, feels to you subjectively. And I think I think companies need to do that, right? And the company is, you know, a group of mammals. We've come together to really solve some of the problems that we feel we need to be solving, and that's where we want to dedicate our time. We want to be healthy doing it, so mm-hmm. it's a big part of what our culture. You know, like we work from. We have studios around the world, but we have but we rent houses, and we're loads of our engineers are surfers, and hmm. they're out, you know, they're out surfing and they're out working. Uh, obviously, our clients shouldn't hear this. Um, mm-hmm. No, I'm, I am kidding. Our clients know this, mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons why uh, why we've been managed why we've managed to have such long term relationships with some some big clients because they do enjoy the culture, and the, our culture then tends to con- contaminate their teams. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of co-location. So is there a master plan? I think the only master plan in this is this idea of a future we want rather than an inevitable future. So mm-hmm. if I was to ask you guys, what future are we going to have? You're going to oh, cars are going to drive us around uh, autonomously, and the phone's going to be so small, it'll be in your retina, and uh, Siri will be like, you know, all over you. And but if I was to ask you what future you want, right, you probably wouldn't talk about phones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You'd probably talk about, like, I just want to, I'm, I want to be healthier, and how can I be happier? How can I feel more alive? How can I, you know, how can I lead a more fulfilling life? You know, all of these kind of corny buzzwords mm-hmm. kind of start start creeping up. And, oh, my God, it's it's all very corny, but it's really what we want. So how do you make that happen? And I think that's the one thing that, uh, unites our collective and our group of people is this is this um, drive to towards creating a reality we really want mm-hmm. and the future we want rather than an inevitable one because you know it is inevitable if you if you allow it to be that way yeah. it's just you're just riding these waves right and and is this where this idea of planet-centric design comes from a uh, planet-centric came about a little bit later when we started thinking about the future we want. You know, we started doing projects like, you know, one of the world's first tumor boards. Like, how do you solve for, for cancer patients within a, a highly complex oncology environment where you have radiologists and all sorts of drugs and all sorts of doctors? And it's it's very complex. So how do, how do you solve for that? Like, I'd like a future where where patient care, right? Because uh, it's, an inev- it's an inevitability to an extent. We're all going to get there at some point. Is It's just much more humane and faster and more efficient, right? Doing that or helping create a phone that is ethically sourced, right? Uh, because we just don't know where our, where our stuff comes from. Because it has a shiny screen, we tend to forget very easily. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. shiny, right? Uh, but it turns out, you know, it's fueling a war, an ongoing war in, in, in Congo for ages where most of, 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 of these rare minerals come from. And we just don't care. And why should we? You know, I like I'm, we're, we lead very busy lives and detachment, you know, it's far away. It's not next door. So we, 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 we shouldn't care. Businesses should care. You know, and businesses should give me the option mm-hmm. um, to, to easily care. Right. Um, and and that's what we did. We helped create the first you know fairphone right which you know went from an idea to turning turning over hundreds of, of millions of of euros and the idea there was to clean up the supply chain um, such that the the smartphone itself was you could label it as ethical the yeah the idea was definitely to help clean up the supply chain it's it's not a problem we users have it's a problem the planet has right mm-hmm. I, I never kind of picked up a phone and went oh uh, is this you know like this is this this doesn't this uh, 
the gold in this comes from this highly diluted uh, repository in in China. Like uh, that's not a problem. People I think have, it would right? be hard for most people to tell you all the ingredients of their smartphone. Yeah, or any. Or, 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 <laughs> yeah, and I don't think the company the companies are completely disincentivized from f- making you aware of that choice. It's in fact quite to the contrary. You're given the marketing. You're given the envy. You're given the branding. Um, so it's so disintermediated it's impossible for the end user to take control over that unless you show them. Was your creation of Fairphone a feeling that it was going to be almost impossible to lobby these companies into good practice or you just simply wanted to, to take control of it yourself? Um, I think I think what Fairphone was trying to do was really create an open source, an open book that um, anyone from the big OEMs to anyone in the supply chain that has actually has, has a consciousness, right? Could copy Apple or, or Samsung or Huawei. I mean, these guys spit out millions of phones every day. Like, there's there's no way we Fairphone could actually compete at a, at a level of scale unless our story became the virus, right? Mm-hmm. That started to contaminate these, these big uh, companies, right? In, in other words, it, it was about creating a movement. It was about creating this little um, little virus, um, and in that sense, it was it was very successful because it opened up a conversation that wasn't there before, right? That that we need to have we we need to have it in in fashion. We need to have it in tech. We need to have it in all of these sectors that so far have been very opaque. Creating that future we want, or working in products that start to delineate the future we want quickly took us to a to a place where we started to think of a planet-centric design approach um, and that's where we where we took some pause and where we went we went from an evidence-based approach which is still there right so our methodology was was always like how can we copy from you know west coast lean best practices of course it all converged into a loop uh, mechanism you know you do a bit of designing you do a bit of engineering and you validate with real users and you go back to design and, and so you loop uh, loop in, in these sprints and very quickly you mitigate your risk and you get to product market fit I mean that's there's no uh, just doesn't sound like rocket science and it isn't um, perhaps on the validation side there is a little bit more science but that's it so we were very like everyone else, um, user-centric, right? So it's, we cared about the user, and the user is a bit like a baby that you put in the middle of the table, and the baby cries, and you go, give it this. Is it still, <laughs> is it still crying? No, 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 it's happy now. Okay, cool, give it more, give it more. <laughs> we as creators, and I'm putting myself in that fold, never really cared uh, much where those where those products that we were giving these users came from or how they were really created, so long as they were um, successful by volume, by profit, by you know, by the KPIs that the market has deemed um, valuable. We were, you know, we were doing um, like many others were doing. And when we started engaging in this kind of what future we want and products for the future we want, we started realizing, oh man, it's we really need to we need to change the way we do these products because otherwise we're continuing to feed this machine uh, rather than change the machine. And yeah, so this, the story then is a simple one, is one where we realize that we need to ask questions on behalf of the planet when we start a product. That's basically planet-centric design. It's what's the goal? The goal is a more balanced planet. We're in the Anthropocene, right? We, we rule. It's the age of man. There's no way around it. What we're trying to achieve now is a balance between the human sphere and the biosphere, right? Mm. Um, if we can find that balance, we might make it, right? We might all make it. 
Um, so it's kind of a, it's a selfish way of, of looking at things. It's, it's survival. And you can only survive in a system where you bring balance to a system. An imbalanced system is going to, is inherently highly entropic and it's going to be very hard to negotiate um, its complexity and, inevi and inevitably, as past civilizations have shown, um, we're, you know, it's not going to work out well for us. When we start creating a new product, we actually used the UN's 17 uh, Sustainable Development Sustainable Goals, the SDGs, SDGs. Yeah. Mm. and we're like, okay, where do we fit in here? Like, what problem are we trying to solve from a planetary perspective, mm -hmm. right? Um, and is it really solving? I mean, the, the SDGs, to be perfectly honest, they're so vague, like yeah, a, 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 anything fits in there, right? So we're not really kind of cutting anyone's legs to begin with. There's a lot of work that needs to go into the SDGs, but that's... What I've noticed that they are good for is raising awareness for the discussion because they've branded it well and served up the UN goals as 17 distinct um, items for an agenda. Well, I noticed that people talk about it now. And that at least starts a conversation at which somebody can start to explore in their own right. Yeah, and then refine the problems within yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So we start at the planetary level. And, and it's interesting starting at the planetary level because you very quickly start to realize that there are other people solving problems within that space. Usually you're not the only one. Mm -hmm. Very quickly you go from this mindset of we're going to conquer the world again to like who else is solving this problem oh great like what have they done do you know like you go into a more kind of collaborative mind space mm -hmm. it feels a little bit more kind of embracing almost hippie-ish like mm -hmm. um and and only then when you when you realize what problems you're solving for the planet do you start narrowing it down towards the user right first there's a planet and you go towards a target audience i guess and when you go towards the target audience then you start deploying the same the same user-centric design uh, methodologies that you know ev everyone is has been perfecting for a number of years now, and they're they're very they're very good. I mean, they give us highly addictive, sexy mm. products, uh, both digital and physical. So, so it's trying to find that that balance. And when we look at the planet-centric aspect of it, people need to start thinking that it's actually an opportunity rather than oh my god, now I need to kind of frame this. If you're trying to solve a problem, or you think you're trying to solve a problem within a within a particular space or for a particular user, and then you you step back and realize that you you could actually um, impact positively. Uh, the oceans it's like wow there's a marketing opportunity there right mm. yeah you probably didn't see before you know it's again it's 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 about connecting those dots that you otherwise wouldn't connect because you're just focused on on on, on profitability product market fit and, and user-centric um, uh, um, methodology mm. that's it i mean can you give an example of, of when you used it um so the glasses i'm oh yeah which you're wearing we should point out to those who wearing, are watching yep and the camera, gonna, yeah. I'm going to hide here, <laughs> just show my glasses. They're great. Um, because we've been working on, I guess, impact-centric uh, projects and products for so long, the planet-centric is, is just a culmination, I guess, or, or a refinement, or we've distilled our thinking into something that starts to make sense and we can start contaminating other people with. I just love these use of, of words like contaminate and viral <laughs> virus. <laughs> yeah. mm. Well, I mean, that's what language does, right? Um, and yeah, um, so wires, if you, if, you look at, if you look at the eyewear industry, um, most eyewear is, you know, PVC, these, you have these sheets of plastic, right? And then a lot of it gets cut and then the negative parts where you're supposed to have your, 
your lenses get discarded and so there's a lot of waste obviously when you buy a pair of glasses you don't think that way but if you're actually creating it you're like oh my God, how is how is this possible there's so much waste so what yayo was trying to do um was create something that is that really mitigates that waste so you have one tube and the tube is finite you kind of cut it at the end there's no waste there right and then you print you print um in 3d and you print what you need without very little waste and we're printing now in a bean paste that will just really yeah will just degrade very elegantly like most things should degrade hmm. um and yeah, we need to solve. We still need to solve for lenses. You know, lenses are a big issue. But is the idea that you can fit any lens into it, without screws and yeah, bits it's it's break. a completely screwless. That sounds awful <laughs> in, in, in marketing and nail art marketing. Um, no pun intended. So it's a it's a screwless hinge, um, and so it's a wire within wire. Yeah, it's very light. You just use one wire. And you can have it in gold, you can have it in titanium. And then the idea is to have multiple uh, lenses, right, fitted to it. So you have this wire for life, um, and then and then you can have multiple glasses, I guess, over time. So the idea is, and if you, even if you look at a Fairphone logic, um, the idea behind modularity is not because it's funky and, you know, like, wow, uh, cool. Um, it's because you can extend the lifetime of a device. And if Could you explain quickly how Fairphone is addressing the supply chain in a responsible way for anybody listening? Um, yes. Well, first of all, it's um, it's being very open about what what the supply chain is and who the agents and who the actors are. And no other company does that, right? Because business reasons, right? Whatever. Mm. So you know where your components are coming from. That's the first thing. And when you know where your components come from, you can make choices, right? I, when I go to the supermarket, I, I, don't want, I don't want strawberries from Peru. I'm sorry, but I don't need strawberries from Peru right now. I can I get my vitamin C elsewhere. If I didn't know, I'd probably want strawberries because I kind of assume oh, it's they're probably locally grown and whatnot, mm. right? So by knowing where things come from, you can very intuitively measure their impact. So the first thing really is transparency. Transparency is a core value without which, and it's you know it's almost like beyond open source. At the core of everything that is sustainable is inherently transparent. And then the other thing is to reinvest the profits and by into the supply chain, looking for friction points, looking for okay, look, the guys out in China assembling this had no healthcare, like. Can we solve? Uh, can we do this? Can we put some, some, uh, some money into that? Um, can we can we put some pressure into that? And the moment that you, as a supplier, become part of a transparent, open supply chain, th- there is an, an added responsibility. Like people are looking into you, what you're doing, right? Um, and if it's a business and you want to scale, you need to address those issues, right? That's that is the o- that's the only way you're out you're ever going to get change uh, at a supply chain. And that you know it works for it works for Fairphone, it works for wires. We have a wearable company that we're working. And I mean, it's it's actually 100% owned by us. It's this crazy idea of not looking at screens anymore. We just wanted. There was a time when we were running around a lot and studios around the world and growing the business. And 
you always had your loved one back home and you're always texting and it's like oh i love you oh i love you too and then an emoji and emojis come mm. along and you send yeah, it turns into an argument and then <laughs> yeah, you don't love each other yeah, yeah. So, and and it sucks so much energy and it's so unimaginative because you know like you yeah i'm going to send you now an emoji of a, an aubergine or like <laughs> <laughs> what is like where is this going and i'm like can we not just have these bracelets? I'm going to give it to my loved one. I keep one and I touch it and mm -hmm. he or she feels it, right? Yeah, let's do this. Well, easier said than done. And a couple of years later, we've managed to, and it's a very successful business right now. It's called Bond. Bond, Bond Touch. Bond Touch, yeah. yeah. And I saw on your Twitter that they were sold out, waiting new deliveries. of. They're, they're always sold out. They're li literally like every batch we make sells out. I can see why. It's really <laughs> a really nice idea. And, and they're a one-to-one -one relationship. One-to-one one -one relationship. You touch it. And you get the touch on the other side. There's no like no screen. Does it vibrate? Does it? Uh, they vibrate. Yeah. Very simple, kind of a purr-like vibration. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of work actually put into the, into the vibration. I can imagine. And so you take that company and you take that idea and you kind of go, okay, you know, where's the supply chain? Where, where are these components coming from? How can we make this better? Where's, you know... And as you scale, it's just something that's, that comes very naturally to us to make it a sustainable supply chain. Mm -hmm. right? And I wouldn't say it's less about the numbers. Uh, in equal measure, we need to find the balance between the numbers and the impact, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you put a bit of energy into it, it's a little bit of energy that needs to go into it, otherwise it's not going to happen. You'll find that it actually, um, that the benefits far outweigh the energy that you're putting into it. But do you think, so with, Samsung and Apple and Huawei, they're all in a, an arms race, effectively. Is there any incentive for them to look at their supply chains and try and make them more ethical? Does that work for them or are they just trying to outcompete each other? I could conceivably that becoming ethical. Well, they're, you know, they, they, these are public companies. The shareholders have a say and mm. the shareholders can voice their concerns like and can ultimately it's the board that will appoint a CEO that will have an an executive plan right and it's the board's inclination to start putting more emphasis on uh, cleaning up supply chain so i apple have have been doing an okay job actually um given their scale they've been putting quite some effort in it uh, they've hired this lady called lisa jackson who's amazing it's, it becomes a, a marketing vehicle for them to be also shown. also right so so that you know at at some point, they've, you've also realized that you know there's a pull and a push factor. The the consumers are, will start to kind of if I have two Apple products and one is green and the other one is not green, and they're you know the green one is ten pounds more. I like of course I'm going to save the gorillas and the you know like it 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 has been a a, a, a marketing ploy for a long time. The problem there is is greenwashing, right? It's very it's very easy for companies to greenwash and it's very easy for companies to in the aftermath you know balance or offset or whatever the term is right that you want you want to deploy or give give no we're going to give our profits not to charity we just polluted all the rivers but you know like half our profits are going to these charities that are now cleaning up the rivers look amazing <laughs> i mean it's it's much better than not mm -hmm. doing it for sure i don't want to be hypocritical but at the same time if you take a more i guess planet centric approach from the very beginning you wouldn't be polluting those rivers right mm -hmm. uh, i understand that a lot of the times you're looking at product market fit and you're tr you're looking at how to create a business right that scales and can actually feed your team and 
because otherwise it's fantasy. So there are loads of pressures um, around, you know, around the economics of, of finding your, your market balance before you find your planet balance, right? Well, economics are unclear because you touched on this in a talk that I watched that you did, which is people are uncomfortable paying a lot of money up front for a new option potentially. But you, you brought up the idea of planned obsolescence which seems to be becoming more and more of a problem in the products we buy is that they're, they're not necessarily built to last. And I think we probably could do better to, to buy something that's got longevity. I think that's the last one to be solved by these big companies because it's more likely for Apple to start cleaning up their supply chain than it is to change their design approach for longevity. Mm. Um, why? Because there's still a market... Um, shareholder-driven dynamic that you need to feed, and that means, oh my God, we're selling less iPhones these qu this quarter. Uh, that that is their problem, right? Um, so that would really that would mean they would sell a lot less, mm -hmm. uh, and that would mean that the whole market dynamic there'd be. They, I think it's, it would actually be illegal to do that from a you know like you'd be hurting your shareholders to you know like it's, mm -hmm. it sounds sounds weird, but I don't even think that would be possible for them at this stage, right? Didn't they just stop um, declaring smartphone sales publicly in favor of they, they, they produce earnings reports, but they're trying to hold back the amount that possibly the sales volume and smartphone penetration is starting to max out for them. Somebody told me about this. I don't know yeah. if it's true. I'll look into it. But the problem they face now is that I've got to be incentivized to buy a new smartphone. And the way they try and keep getting me to buy a new one falls in sync with a contract, which is 18 to 24 months at the moment. Um, and I'm ceasing to see enough value in renewing my phone to a new model. We all, we all are. We all are. We all are. And that's, and that's why their numbers are starting to slow down in terms of sales because... I think my my you know my phone right now what it does now and the previous model uh, you know there's not much I can do pretty much everything on it because app based the applications sit within the phone which means it's as intelligent as the applications permit not yeah. necessarily the hardware advantage I think from a photography perspective they still have a bit of a runway to improve there and photography we're we're such kind of a an image centric primate species that we we need you know we, we want those images and i think they'll get us they'll, they'll, they'll continue to to hook us on on that front and sell a lot, a lot more but the but that curve is declining we all know that right um and they're looking for the next bit big thing and next big thing is is going to be less visible i guess uh, mm. less object oriented more i guess omniscient i think that there's a lot of firepower in in siri in in an intelligence that is uh, more agnostic in terms of devices, um, and and that can scale better. I mean, it is it's expensive to make these devices. Like if you can get away without making devices and still keep your you know your revenue and your, your PNL intact. So that's that, Ollie's point, though. They're then trapped into the supply chain that they've built to reduce cost. Yeah, it, you are. It's a it's a very tricky one. Uh, you can change it slowly. But if you know that your sales are going to decline, how much effort are you going to put into it? It's, uh, you know, in the 70s or 80s, uh, Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak weren't really, that wasn't their issue, you know? Like, they went to India and they enjoyed, and the planet wasn't still all right to, for the most part. And they, they, were thinking, they were thinking about how to augment humanity, you know, how to really empower us. And they have. Right. And they've, you know, like we were much more 
productive and intelligent and um, entertained um, than we've ever been. Um, so, you know, like amazing, amazing job. It's just, you know, the planet has kind of been left behind. And so what you're saying <laughs> is that we need, p companies need to start off from yeah. these principles. Uh, yeah, w yeah. Otherwise it's not, uh, you can't really change old habits. Yeah. Are you seeing companies start to follow your, your supply chain example? I think there's more and more people thinking this way. Um, more younger people who kind of go, this is just on, like you've got, you guys have been milking this forever. This is not, this n there's nothing left for us. Like we really need to rethink the way we're doing it. I see it everywhere. Mm. Like I go, I, I was in Zurich at, um, had, had lunch with, at, at dinner with friends. The, the kids, they were actually, they had fair phones and they had fair phones because they were making a statement to an extent, right? Not because it's uh, it's the best phone in the mm. planet. It's not, mm. right? By far, it's not. Um, it's n it's not an amazing product from a phone perspective. But they're making a statement. I think we'll start to see more of that. At least I, in my experience, I, I think. So. I mean, in our day job at Angel Investment Network, we've seen enough uh, movement in that space to start and basically another version of our platform called Sea Tribe, which is which is dedicated to impact driven. Huh. companies i look at milk like the milk substitutes like that it's, it's <laughs> a billion dollar business oh, yeah. it's, it's incredible bill liao um uh, uh perfect day perfect uh, day yeah yeah we we had a guest who came on and said that they were making milk out of yeast yeah and apparently it was identical yeah. and we share a trademark with with impossible foods uh, impossible foods there i mean they're one of the darlings of the valley right now mm. uh, everyone's invested in them it, uh, when we we had them over they they cooked us they cooked us some burgers uh and obviously we're not going to do uh food and they're not going to do tack or you know like so we, we have like a coexistence agreement it's great and they came over to cook us burgers before they were commercially uh, viable or available by then they had spent the, like at that time it was 182 million dollars and wow. uh, and we, you know, we're eating these burgers, you know, it must have been like 20 million each. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, they've managed to synthesize this honeydew melon heme, you know, he from hemoglobin. And that's what you, when you burn, so when you get that kind of, um, that burnt meat. Yeah, the grilled. The grilled yeah. kind of, mm. um, And I mean, I couldn't tell the difference. It's amazing. I couldn't tell the difference. And from a nutritional value is much better on every single front you know it's been engineered to to be so that's not a trend that's not a fad that's like it's here yeah like it's here uh, you mentioned collaboration earlier and I, i'm still interested in in how your business model at impossible works because the companies i think we've discussed so far they're 100 percent owned by you but presumably lots of the other ones in your portfolio are, i don't know whether you have part ownership or you just consider their consider them clients like for instance the uh, wiki tribune one with jimmy oh, Wales. Tribune. Uh, yeah i think it's a hybrid like we have companies that we own 100 percent. we mm -hmm. have companies that we own a, a smaller share and sometimes a, a really small share and so uh, and we have companies where we just get royalties from for example right. um so i guess the business reality just cha does change depending on on circumstances uh wiki tribune is w was um was a gift uh, a, a simple and beautiful gift. Um, Jimmy had been toying around with this idea of trying to do something within the journalistic space, within the media space, I guess. Um, In the sort of post-truth um, post era. era. Yeah. yeah. And and he'd been like, he'd been talking about it for so long. It's like, let's just, 
here's some engineers and some designers, just please <laughs> do it. <laughs> and so we helped kick it off, right? Um, and we helped, we helped kick it off. We helped, we helped around with the thinking, right? Uh, and some of the doing in the, in the very beginning. And uh, that's as much credit as, as I would like to take for it mm-hmm. uh, and as I can. Um, uh, you know, it's such a complex space. It's such a, it's such a tough one because the business model is also skewed, is always skewed towards negative news and a yeah. negative bias that we have and the way that negative news travels a little bit faster than, than positive news. And I guess there's a, a framework that was created uh, that we are having a hard time escape as as consumers of, of, of media, right? Yeah. And it's, it was interesting yesterday, I was, Lily and I we, we were reading this article at the same time in two different locations, a BBC article. It was about you know, climate change and you know, the fact that this 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 uh, freeze is in, in, in the Midwest is coming from Canada and, and Trump and then further down the the article Trump had said um, had tweeted uh, where's climate we need we need global warming right oh now right and gosh. and then and then there was this tweet of the the actually the U.S.'s uh, national meteorological uh, uh, I guess uh, institution and they tweeted the warming of the Gulf waters and that generates more vapor like it's in the atmosphere and drop down and comes down as the, the big freeze. A couple of hours later that was gone. The BBC self-censored the whole climate science part, right? And that's the BBC who we deem, you know, like and and isn't they censored it because they wanted the Trump outrage the, to get people reading the article no they censored it they removed trump they, removed, they trump. removed the science behind it right they just wanted to say i'm still i'm still actually discussing this with friends it's part of our today's conversations like mm-hmm. why did they why did they remove that why did you know it was actually a, a comprehensive article that i didn't feel was too biased mm-hmm. right quite balanced and then it just became an article about there's the big freeze is coming down the midwest you know, like <laughs> well, worse if, if smartphones are driving media consumption habits, and it's what fits on a small screen and keeps your attention between your text messages, then the news is going to go in a really bad direction. As per that, we we do need long form content that seeks to educate, especially yeah. around topics like this. But it's still it's still a choice. Like I will, I like to think I'm quite conscious in which content I choose to to consume but still every now and again i see a headline that i just think well fuck it i'm gonna click that (laughs) it's gonna be salacious or or whatever we all do that but to kwame's point of creating happiness the affinity we have for negative news leads me to believe on some level that we want to be made unhappy or irate or, or have some kind of emotional reaction to things because we do seem to seek it out Disproportionately so. I mean, oh, do you not feel better though when you read something negative? Yeah, we're we're dis- we're built. You know, Harari would say, you know, like at the fabric of the social glue that made us what we are is gossip, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and gossip is is not just like oh he's doing very well. You know, it's like she's she's just slept with that person and slept with that and he slept with. We need to define what future we want, yep. right? And that's the first thing. And then usually what needs to happen is we need to find some sort of legislative framework that works, that we can drive towards that future. So, and, and there's loads of calls now for, especially in Europe, right, or in this, in this side of the pond for more regulation around social media, around, around the content that we, that we consume. Um, you don't have that. In the U.S., it's much more, I guess, uh, liberal in that sense. You know, is that a... 
is that a potential solution? Because we're not, you know, like I'm not going to self police police myself. I, I just want I'll click on that mm. link and mm. and you know, like I'm a bit older. I've been in this planet for uh, for a few revolutions, solar revolutions. So m- maybe my critical my my ability to be critical is a little bit more developed than a 12 year old or you know a 20 year old. The younger you are, the less critical you are. So the the easier prey you are to these. Uh, you know, to these what they call dark patterns mm-hmm. to an extent. Is a solution regulation? It's quite tough to, you know, and then it's like, oh, it's not free anymore. It's like, oh, but it, it hasn't been free for a long time, right? I mean, the yeah. media has. What do you think of it if, if it moved away from the advertising algorithm model to uh, a system where we paid subscription to the content we want to consume? Does that, does that sufficiently allow journalists space to to produce content that isn't, you know, just trying to be clickbaity. It's yeah, but that's a theoretical question, right? That is the reality is if you look if you do a bit of number crunching, a subscription they're struggling. Subscription is not easy. Um, it's easy if you're Netflix and you have a lot of crap content with some amazing content mixed into it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then you you know like you're fueling a consumption habit that will from a behavioral pattern perspective I want to I want to continue paying for this because it's just the, the, there's a nice balance there. I I, do, I really don't see the the business model changing and I I don't I honestly don't think that there is you're not going to force new business model. What needs to happen is that the people creating more balanced content and better content need to need to be better at at getting to their audiences and need to, you know, because good content will just like, you know, mm. you remember when Harry Potter came along, like people were like, my God, you need to read this. It's like mm. this thing almost didn't need a cover or didn't need a film. You know, good content is just inherently consumable and viral and shareable. Even people who do long form, okay, what's the short form that will hook me into that long form? They need to be thinking about that because rather than, oh my God, I'm going to protest and I need, perhaps I need more regulation or that. What can I do to get more people to come to read my content without me actually moving my ass? You know, like, mm-hmm. that's probably not, you're not going to get very far, right? You really need to understand the dynamics of a, of a system and sabotage it from within rather than, yeah, bitch about it. I saw a climate report by the IPCC and I wanted to go to the primary source and read it. Within five pages, I was mentally fatigued. Yeah because it was written in such inaccessible language. I didn't need it to have a clear statement. I didn't need a soundbite from it, but it also didn't lend itself to, to being readable or understandable or interpretable. Was that the report itself or an article about it? It was the report, but which it doesn't, need to, it doesn't need to work to inform me, but I, I think it's a breakdown. But it should. That boils down to how the IPCC is funded. Like if they were, you know, if their dollars were, were dependent on you actually sharing that article, then probably they would do a better job at writing it because they're intelligent. You know, mm. like there's mm. no... Really right? intelligent. <laughs> right? So it, it's just being lazy. I, yeah. I felt like it would have benefited from headers giving you an, a, a direction of where the next p- point of contact was going to go. And, and you see a lot of that in, you know, in, in deep tech and all this kind of ca- climate change, um, yeah, bibliography. Like you've got so many intelligent people creating so much content that doesn't get doesn't get through to to the voter, right? To the person that goes to the ballot and kind of casts its vote, right? And what gets through is is if somebody comes along and says and does a cracks a funny joke at climate climate warming, right? That's that's what gets through. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I I I guess what I'm saying is just we need to stop bitching about it and just 
embracing the fact that we're highly emotional, gossip-driven primates, and we need to package our content in ways that um, that can actually, you know, uh, go from primate to primate a lot faster. Do you have a, a grand vision for the experiment, you're, the grand experiment that you're running with Impossible? I have a future I would like, as opposed to a future I wouldn't like. Um, it's utopian and but utopian meaning all things to all people utopian meaning a non-place a place that doesn't yet exist but that we dream of the grand vision for me it's more i'm actually more i i don't know with the years and the old age i've become more pragmatic so for me it's more about how to make it work on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and how to you know how do we get through this year and what have we created and how can we look back and kind of go, oh, that's a really nice story. And that's like, yeah, that's cool. Or we really like messed up on that one. That's <laughs> not, not cool at all. And from time to time, you know, around the campfire, have 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 more utopian, dystopian conversations. And I'd love to I'd love to get more into how do you change the political system? How do you change democracy? So it's more participative, so it's more direct, so it's faster, so it's more in line with our, with all the advancements that that were allowed to us by technology, right? Mm -hmm. So there's such a disconnect there because it's like, you know, it's like an old boys club to an extent. Um, It's not so much about the issue. So I used to kind of like shiver at the the thought of, oh, you know, politics. But if you look at uh, Greenpeace, a few years ago we did this Greenpeace in 2020, What's the vision on it? They're, you know, like they're trying at the time. You had what I don't know, David Cameron, whomever. They were trying to get the prime minister to watch the boat being rammed by the whaler. And, you know, like that would be part of the prime minister's conversation. Like, oh, did you see that? Right. And that conversation then starts to infiltrate, the, you know, the halls of power, the corridors of power. And hopefully it will converge into some lobbying past that we can't kill our whales. Right. I mean, you know, like very top down. Right. There's a bottom up approach, which is clean up the supply chain, start putting a organic shelving in your in your supermarket. You start with a couple of products. I remember, mm. I was I'm mm. old enough to remember, like there were just a, it was just a really small shelf, like organic. And then eventually we started voting for organic more with, with our wallets. It's not like the supermarkets were really good and like we want to give you organic. It's yeah. like they were just business minded and that shelf became bigger and bigger. There are different ways to get to an end vision. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I'm more and more interested in in the political one and how do you get how do you get laws passed that we move as bigger group of people to enact change at the same time obviously we've been working on the product side of it and how do you create change um, from within products so it's these two i guess these two ends of the same spectrum that we're interested in and the vision is just a more balanced planet where we can kind of survive and I, yeah are you optimistic i am um i'm optimistic that sounds sound like hesitation there like a psychologist would go oh no hmm. uh, you don't you don't, there is nothing in your portfolio yet to, um directly addressing climate change which i which i would say is probably the biggest um if you're going to directly address climate change because that's a very loaded question we'd probably ha- be having we we would have to be working in carbon sequestering, uh, sequestering, and that's like a very energy intensive. Uh, there, are, there's Climeworks in Zurich, and there's another company out in in the U.S. doing. We'd have to be working with those guys. Yeah. Uh, climate change. So we're talking about keeping carbon. There's this company. I think they're called Self. What they're doing is they're re-engineering plants. So, that, you know, plants obviously they turn. 
um, carbon dioxide into sugar mm -hmm. uh, and and nutrition and inevitably they 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 sequester they capture that carbon in the root system but once you dig out the roots or they decompose the plant dies the carbon goes back into the atmosphere right mm -hmm. so the trick is how do you keep that carbon as for as long as you can and that's building a a, a cork-like coating around the the root system and making the root system much bigger and you can bioengineer that and that's being done we're not working with those guys we'd like to work with those guys it's a tricky question when you say directly working with, car with for climate change is plastic like plastic in the oceans is that contributing to climate change um i don't know uh, i think it is i think yeah. it causes the the temperature to rise which means the because this, this, the sea um, uh, absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide. Yeah. And I think the temperature rising means it could absorb less. And that has a knock-on effect. Climate okay. Change, I think. No, I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess I'd, I'd have to look into that. All I'm saying is that there are loads of issues that uh, may not directly contributing, contribute carbon capturing, but could contribute to a more, still a more balanced planet. Yeah. Mm. Right? Cool. Uh, so, so it's a tricky one. Uh, but yeah. Point taken. We uh, oh, we just interested. We, it wasn't. It to, wasn't a criticism. We, we need to start doing more. Do you think front. there'll be um, more integration between uh, urban environments and ecosystems? E.g., more green cities. So we have this project called Glimpse. The reason why it started was I I had just had this idea: cities where we just all walk around naked all the time. There's no like clothing. Like why why do we need clothing? The city a utopian of, city. My utopian city would be like. Absolute, uh, absolute nakedness. <laughs> um, how we would dress ourselves would be digitally. It's like a point. I could have some goggles or point my phone at you if you still have phones or whatever it is, and I'd look at you, I'd recognize you, and you, you know, in the morning you'd say like, today this is how I'm feeling, feeling like a dragon, or like, and look at you, and you'd literally be a dragon. Like, there's no reason why why that wouldn't be possible. And so I founded a company based on that principle, uh, like AR. AR, yeah, yeah. Got a whole bunch of engineers from Intel and whatnot, old friends, and we started building this kind of engine. And is that the one where you have on your website with somebody who turns into a, a like an orangutan? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It was a dragon orangutan. You mean whatever you want. It sounds quite Ready Player One esque. <laughs> 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 it's a, it, it is a little, yeah. It's a good good analogy. More to to your point of what type, you know, cities and cities are growing. They're not slowing down. They're, everybody's saying, oh, we're living. I think the biggest factor in this is going to be the driverless car because from the moment you have a driverless car, the property prices change. It could be much further away. Your price per mile commuted is going to be a lot less. Um, so it's, it's going to lower that. And it's going to change the equation slightly. So cities might start to acquire a different type of shape. Do we need more greenery? I think we need... There's this great, we all need to balance our impact. And that means we need to understand what our base, it comes down to carbon footprint, it sounds boring, and we need to come up with another uh, another way of saying it. But, you know, how much carbon, what, what's our footprint? How much carbon do we really, you know, exude into the into the atmosphere? Right now, the easiest way of doing that is just through, through forestry, mm -hmm. right? So there are there are NGOs out there, you know, like the, the one we prefer is the World Land Trust. It's sponsored by David Attenborough. It's like it's it's a really, really amazing organization, and they buy large pieces of land. Like we're talking, lar you know, in Uruguay and Paraguay and like all over the world, and and protect it, keep it, find a way to find a balance between existing communities and and the current current forest 
density, right? Mm. They try to improve, even improve on that forest density. And that's the way you can, they don't even use the word offset, they use the word balance, which is quite beautiful. That's the way you can balance your footprint, right? For large companies and also for individuals. So right now, look at Singapore. I mean, there there are cities, cities, city states that, that have the luxury now to start thinking about that. But for the most part, you go through you go India, you go the most of the bricks there, you know, they're thinking survival, right? Yeah. They're still at they're they're still at survival level. Mm. You're right. It may be just more efficient to address that issue near forests and reclaim deforested land rather than putting it into urban environments. I suspect mm. that's how we had our balance and we lost it, right? To to an extent, we start we started digging out digging up all these fossil fuels and putting it up there and killing our oceans and and forests and those were the you know the balancing agent <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, what can we do build more machines to capture the like is technology the solution for technology mm. <laughs> Pro- probably not mm. we'll, we will find out very uh, very painfully so we, we always end with just okay. three quick for our questions have you got another prediction for the future you give a prediction actually, actually yeah. did i have one can I steer you towards one? Because we've yeah. talked about planet-centric design. I want to know if you have a prediction for potential Martian existence and extraplanetary design. I think what's happening is you have to start seeing, looking at technology as an organism, right? As a living, breathing organism that has its own life, although albeit artificial. And we created technology, and then technology as an organism is looking, will start pretty soon being quite sentient and we'll start drink some of the values but ultimately it's value is survival and how can it survive right um so if we are to go into i don't know what is proxima centauri alpha centauri the closest the closest stars it's still going to take about 100 years right uh, and so it's right now not really very feasible to take biological to take us in our fragile humane mm. form um, put it in these shuttles and, and, and off we go. It's a lot easier to go in a bodiless format. So, so technology is inevitably driving itself, if it is to survive, to a more bodiless embodiment, right? To a more bodiless nature. That's where I feel if we go down the inevitability route, an inevitable future, we're going to start to have to contend with shedding our bodies and just sending our souls. Mars, is Mars interesting? Um, Mars is interesting. I think there's a lot more from a, from a, from a mining uh, potential out in space than there is in, on Earth. So to start to colonize space from a mining, per- from a resource perspective, whilst leaving the Earth pristine and much more balanced makes perfect sense. I mean, Bezos, mm-hmm. everyone's talking about that, right? There's even funds, there's a Seattle fund, a big fund that's investing in exoplanetary mining, you know, uh, capabilities. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I find it inevitable. Is that the future I want? No, I really like, you know, I like Wyoming. Mm. I like, uh, <laughs> you know, Stay I here. like, I, yeah, I like it here. It's, mm. it's, it's nice. It's warm, right? Not now. <laughs> Another question we have is um, a startup book. Not even a startup book, a book that you would recommend. Oh man, uh, there's so many. That's such a that's a t- tough question. I really like. I'm gonna send. I'm gonna give you a book that is very different. I'm gonna give you Paul Theroux's um, "Paddling the Pacific." Hmm. Just take a canoe and go paddle the Pacific, rather than, yeah. I think that will open your minds. Yeah, and if you have the opportunity, uh, yeah, just 
go out there. It's uh, that's where life is. And the last but not least, the best advice you've you've been given um, or received. Be truthful to yourself. Yeah, I think just just be just be yourself. Mm-hmm. Be, it's it's really tough because uh, we you know we we imitate before we innovate, right? So we're like constantly imitating, and then there comes a time when. I know maybe it's a midlife crisis where you realize we need to kind of tell apart what is imitation behavior and what is what have you been able to innovate? What is truly yours? And that's when you really need to figure out your voice, right? And that's who are you and um, your truth. So it's a type of honesty, but it's kind of an honesty going inwards um, for which I recommend um, an ayahuasca trip or mm-hmm. something of that sort mm-hmm. that kind of helps uh, fragment the ego and here Portugal is a good place to go for well, that Portugal I'd go to the Amazon if I could yeah. but Portugal is yeah. definitely just a couple of hours away yeah um, and f- and finally is there anything you'd like to ask anybody listening if they can if they've got something they could help Impossible or you with well if you're working on a on a carbon slash food production startup carbon sequestering slash food production startup yeah we would uh, we, we would be happy to happy to learn mm-hmm. <laughs> is there an email they can reach out to for that uh yeah just my name kwame at impossible.com easy kwame it's been a great deal of fun very interesting thank you guys if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our twitter handle is at the startup mike m-i-c or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.